The following podcast is brought to you by The Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Bokshu. Nice to see you all here. Um, as some of you know, we have our summer ango coming up, our intensified practice period. And I thought I would revisit one of my favorite topics in advance of that, which is, why are we doing this? Why are we here together like this online? It's great to see everyone online as well and in person. I'm sure you have some idea of what you might be doing here. And I don't want to interfere with your ideas, but I'll add my own and other people's ideas. So you can just kind of throw it into the blender and see what happens for you with that. So one of my favorite things to try to blow up is this idea of being a better person coming here and sitting or sitting at home, as the case may be, because you would like to be a better person. I mean, that sounds very nice. And I think based on our social programming, all of us would like to be better people. But can you tell me what that would look like? Is there anyone who has the standard of behavior, the personality, that we all can agree on as being a better person? The question answers itself. But in addition to that, I would ask you, if we are all so flawed, and believe you me, I see myself that way. If we are all so flawed, how are we flawed beings to design a program of improvement? How are we to figure that out? It's like asking a broken watch to tell the time correctly. Well, twice a day it does, but you wouldn't wear it on your wrist, would you? So if it isn't to become a better person, what might it be that brings us here? And I'd like to read from a very esteemed master, Koto Sawaki Roshi, uh, and Let's see what he thinks. Let's see if I can do this. Take my glasses off without displacing the ever important microphone. So Sawaki writes, Jijuyu Samadhi is zazen that comes to nothing. You have to forget any results of your effort. Results-oriented practice is merely an enterprise, a business. Monks say they have no time to do zazen. I always say zazen is an activity that comes to nothing. There is nothing more admirable than this activity that comes to nothing. To do something with a goal is really worthless. So for Sawaki Roshi, Zen is good for nothing. It's a very clever aphorism. You can look at it in multiple ways. It is itself rather a koan. But 
What is this nothing that he's talking about? If you knew what nothing was, what would you do with it? Could you sell it? Could you kick it down the road like a can? Um, is this nothing something? Is there something to this nothing that Sawaki is talking about? He doesn't really give us a hint of what that might be. For me, I think we look, need to look at what's between the nothing of Sawaki and the something of utilitarian Zen. The utilitarian, I want to be better and therefore I will do this meditation thing. So that very transactional view is on one end of the spectrum and Sawaki Roshi is on the far other end of the spectrum. Just so. I mean, I do appreciate Sawaki's sit and trust the practice. But I think there's something in between because I think that people, we've got to recognize that people need a motivation, they need an inspiration. I think that that's a common need. So I, I would like to respect that feeling while not making what we're doing here utilitarian. So what is in between these two polar opposites? I, I do want to mention one more problem with the utilitarian version of it, which is the self-improvement version. It is in fact the teaching of this Buddhist religion that the self is the problem that clinging to a self is the source of our suffering. So if you want to become a better person, is that not more clinging to the self? Why would you improve or seek to improve something that in fact does not exist? That would seem to be a waste of time. In fact, more than a waste of time, the exact opposite of what the teachings tell us our practice is about. So, if it isn't nothing and it isn't utilitarian, how does this practice manifest in our lives? How are we to use this Sazen practice in our daily lives? In my arrogance and delusion, I will try to tell you if the self is something that we can stop clinging to, and if we can stop clinging to that self, stop suffering, then what is the way to stop clinging to the self? That would seem to be the key to this practice. And I think that the way to stop clinging to the self is to get to know it and to become more comfortable with it. Because if you're more comfortable with something, aren't you much less inclined to wrap your hand around it and hold it as tightly as you do now? The identity that you carry with you, this is me, I'm this kind of person, this is how I am. Those kinds of ideas are very prone to cause suffering. And they cause a lot of suffering. I mean, just look at the political landscape, people asserting their opinions at the exclusion of others, tremendous conflict 
in our country right now, in the United States, because people are so prone to assert their views as the truth and to hold themselves up as defenders of the truth. And that is a prescription for tremendous pain, and it is causing tremendous pain. So clearly that's not the way to solve our problems. Our problem is the self and defending and building up the self and defending and building up the opinions that we use to define who and what we are. And if we can let those go, even a tiny bit, even for a moment, every day, we'll be causing less suffering for ourselves and others. As Dogen put it in his Genjo Koan, to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by the myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. To forget the self. Hmm? It's right there in our founding teacher and what he says. But this is all rather theoretical. So let me bring it into something more tangible and real life. An event that I recently experienced. I live in Greenwich Village, which is generally considered to be a pretty fancy neighborhood, very safe, quote unquote. I was walking along a street in my neighborhood, 10th Street, and I was coming toward Broadway, the corner, and around the corner came a man I'd never seen before. And it was just so happened that we were in this relationship where we really had no time to adjust how we were moving. And this happens everywhere all the time in crowded cities, people coming upon each other quite suddenly. So I stopped to avoid a collision and he stopped. And then what happened was very unexpected. He was at an angle to me. I was facing east, he was facing northwest. So my goal at that moment was to walk around to pass behind him, thinking that he would continue on his way and we would then avoid any contact or collision. But that is not what he had in mind. What he had in mind was quite different. He turned toward me, put his hands on my shoulders and pushed me as hard as he could backward onto the ground. And then he just walked away. There were no words exchanged. I wasn't asked for money. He wasn't homeless. That was the first thing the cops asked me was, was he homeless? Like somehow that was the key to everything. But he didn't appear to me to be homeless. He had no bags at all. His hands were completely free, obviously, because he used them to assault me. So um, he, could, he, just, he slightly adjusted his course to no longer walk on 10th Street, but rather on Broadway. But he was walking away at a very leisurely pace. You would never know to look at him that he had done anything to anyone. There was no indication afterwards that anything had happened. Of course, I was on the ground and I have to be thankful that he did walk away because at that moment I was completely helpless. There was absolutely nothing I could have done to defend myself. If he had chosen to pursue his attack, 
I would not be here with you now. So I have to be thankful for that. But of course, I was hardly thankful at that time. So I got myself up and um, after speaking with some witnesses, I called 911. And in due time they came and they did absolutely nothing. <laughs> they crossed their arms across their chests, listened to me with a great deal of skepticism, saw that I didn't need an ambulance and decided that it was not a problem, that this was not worth reporting. So they didn't tell me. And this is something you should know. If somebody assaults you, and that's what this was, you need to get the police to write it up. They need to write on a document that there is a report of an assault, because if they don't do that, nothing happens. Well, they didn't bother to tell me that. So I didn't ask for it, therefore they did nothing. I only found out about this a week later when I called the cops to see what was going on with it. Not that I had any expectation that they would do anything, mind you, but in any case, I wanted to know what was happening and they couldn't find it, and that's why. So remember, if you have a problem like this, make the cops write it up and then get a number. So, um, you know, we're in this temple where everything is all peace and love, or so you might think. Well, I'm not about peace and love for this guy. I want him to be found, arrested, charged, tried, convicted, and imprisoned. I want those things very much. I'm very angry about what he did. He chose to do it. I watched him make the choice. He was, as I said, at an angle to me. I was close enough to him. I watched his eyes move in their sockets to face me before he did what he did. It was chilling. I, I, I can't explain it, but I felt it was tremendously intimate to have that view of a person's mind as they made the decision to attack. So I'm not about peace and love for him. But I also realize, as I'm not about peace and love, that my anger toward this man more than two or three weeks later is my own form of suffering. So let's distinguish between pain and suffering, because I think it's critical to understand the difference. When I hit the ground and I hit it hard, that was painful. And when I got up and started to walk after him, with 911 on the phone, that hurt. It was painful to walk. Right now, I still have pain in my back from the impact. Sitting here right now, weeks later, I'm in therapy for it. But the anger that I'm talking about is not pain, it is suffering. It is what we do with what happens to us to prolong the experience, to prolong the emotion, to continue to feel that we have been wronged and that we, we must have vengeance, that is a form of suffering. It isn't that he shouldn't pay for his crime. That's not suffering. He should be accountable for what he did, just as all of us should be accountable for what we do, including me, absolutely. We should all be accountable for our actions. But that's different from the emotional energy that says, I want justice, I want vengeance, I want retribution. That is suffering. 
So I can suffer and I can see myself suffering. And I can see that I actively am choosing to suffer. And it's a perfectly legitimate choice. I am entitled to choose to suffer, but I at least know what I'm doing, right? I know that I have a choice and that I can put that down at any time, that I can drop that emotional intensity and simply be methodical about it. Call the police, continue to nag them and get them to do something. That's very different from the anger and retribution side of it. And this is how I'm practicing with it, okay? So bringing practice into our daily lives means using the teachings to regulate and examine our emotions. And through that examination and regulation to work with our behavior so that we don't go around pushing people over when we don't have to. I think it's pretty fair to say that this gentleman, and I use the term quite loosely, is not a Buddhist practitioner. He is in the export business, that's what I call it. He is exporting his pain onto others because he doesn't know how to work with it. It has become intolerable to him to be who he is. And for that reason, he must exercise his demons through others. People walking around completely oblivious to what's going on in this guy's head, and there are many more examples of this besides him, are just waiting to be used as vehicles for his suffering to be exported. So that was my function. I was used as a vet, a safety valve for this man's anger and whatever else was going on inside of him. You know, and there's another way to think of it, that if he hadn't pushed me over, maybe he would have killed someone else, someone who really offended him, someone who really did something that triggered him instead of just being in his way, someone who had made a remark to him. He could have acted out in a far more harmful way. I'm not saying I want to be pushed over just to spare someone else that, but it's quite possible that I saved a life by getting in the guy's way. And who knows what he's done since. But what he probably hasn't done is sat down on a cushion and looked at his mind and dealt with his own problems himself. And that is what we're here doing. And why are we doing it? Not to become better people, but to reduce suffering, to prevent harm. There's plenty of it in the world. So we can just do a little bit to reduce it by taking care of what's going on inside ourselves. And the way to do that is to look at it and look at it and look at it and get a lot more comfortable with it. And as we get more comfortable with it, what happens? Well, it drops away. <laughs> That's the teaching. Well, I've really jumped ahead. 
Once I get on a roll, there's no stopping my mouth. Okay. So, I want to bring up another aspect of the teaching that we talk about a lot, which is non-separation. So, I don't see myself as separate from this guy. And at the same time, I don't see myself as the same as him. So there's a real art and tension in this. I can recognize that in myself, I have that rage. I have the potential for tremendous anger. <laughs> I spoke to it already, right? It's not that it's foreign to me. It's that I work with it and regulate it because I don't want to cause suffering. I'm not interested in being a good person. I'm really not interested. That is the road to hell. I can think of so many times where I've sweated bullets over what someone thought of me or what I did or what I said and tormented myself over that. That's a waste of time. But I can get behind the idea of preventing harm and suffering. That I can get enthusiastic about. And the way to do that is not only to look at our own conduct and thoughts on the cushion, but to also not separate from the conduct and thoughts of others. And we would love to blame them, wouldn't we? I mean, it would be so easy for me to sit here and talk about how evil that man was and how terrible what he did was, and God knows what else he's doing, and go on and on about his demented behavior. But that, that is too easy. That lets me off the hook completely, doesn't it? Not that I'm to blame for that incident, not at all. But if I'm not looking at what's going on in here and just pointing the finger at someone else, I'm not doing the work. That's just more suffering. The blame is just going to make more people suffer. He's rough, you know, it's a fair bet that he's walking around thinking pretty bad stuff about himself, okay? Not that I feel any particular sympathy for him, but does he really need more retribution and shame? He's probably covered with guilt and shame already. That's probably why he did what he did. I mean, what was it really? Did his mommy not love him? Did he not have a girlfriend? Did he lose a girlfriend or a boyfriend? Did he lose his job? Or was he just having indigestion? Who knows what it was? But he wasn't working with himself and he wasn't connecting with me. He saw me as separate. He saw me as disposable. There's a person in my way. I'm going to move them by force out of my way. And you can only do that with someone who's separate from you, who you can't identify with, who you see as disposable. This is absolutely the wrong frame of mind. So we are not only looking at ourselves deeply, intimately, compassionately, persistently, relentlessly looking at ourselves, but we are also not turning away from or disconnecting from what we see in other people. Other people, <laughs> even our own way of referencing it, speaks to the separation idea. But as we call them other people, look at the connection. Don't deny the connection. Don't be superior. Don't be moralistic. It's pointless. So I'm not separate from him. 
I'm not separate from the people who stopped. There's a couple, they stopped. The man didn't want to stop. The woman did. It was so interesting. Even as I was in pain on the sidewalk, I was noticing the difference in their responses. And uh, then I had a conversation with them. I'm not separate from the people who didn't stop. How many times have we seen somebody acting out on the street and said, oh, that's too much. I, I can't get close to that. I don't want to be involved. I think we've all had that experience. So I'm not separate from those people. I'm not separate from the cops and their skeptical regard for me and their lack of action, their incredible offensive indifference to my problems. I'm not separate. And you, <laughs> last but certainly not least, you are not separate from it either. You're not separate from me, you're not separate from that guy, and you never have been, not even for a moment, separate from it. So why does our practice demand non-separation? It's because it's factually correct. It is accurate to say that we are not separate from one another. And we are about, I think, I think that we're about the truth, <laughs> some version of it anyway. And the truth is we're not separate. So we better get on the bandwagon of not seeing ourselves as better than, less than, separate from, and so on. So, <clears throat> I've talked about suffering and I've talked about non-separation. And if you look at our koan literature, you see that mo many, if not most of our koans are about those very things. There's a koan that came up for me when I was thinking about what happened and I'd like to share it with you. It's case 97 of the Blue Cliff Record, the Diamond Cutter Scripture's scornful revilement. The koan goes like this. The Diamond Cutter Scripture says, if one is scornfully reviled by others, this person has done wicked acts in previous ages, which should bring him down into evil ways. But because of the scorn and vilification by others in the present age, the wicked action of previous ages is thereby extinguished. Karma, right? That's what this is talking about. We don't talk about karma very much in Zen, but this koan really is squarely pointing at karma. Um, so when I was pushed to the ground, was that me being scornfully reviled? Was that me paying for my past actions? Was I, in fact, now sitting here wanting retribution? Was it, in fact, the retribution for my own errors and faults in prior ages? Is that what happened? Am I to blame? It's an interesting proposition, isn't it? It puts a whole spin on this that I never considered before I looked at this con, but I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not buying it. I'm not blaming myself 
for this guy's behavior. I have enough to do managing my own behavior in this age. So forget about the previous ages. Let's just focus on what we're doing right here and now. And let the previous ages take care of themselves. And by the way, what is a previous age? When was that previous age? Was it 10,000 years ago? Or was it that? When was the previous age in which I did the thing that led to him pushing me down? I'm not buying it. But the question of when the previous ages were is an interesting one. And what about that guy? There's this language in the koan, bring him down into evil ways. So was, wasn't that an evil thing to do? Was he being brought down to evil ways because of his prior actions in previous ages? So although he was enacting retribution in this model, was he in fact part of the, of the um, karma equation? So he had his karma, I had my karma, somehow these roles were foreordained. There was in what he did, I haven't spoken of this, an almost military precision. It was as if he had been trained to do that, and as if he was absolutely prepared at that moment to do it. It happened so quickly, it took my breath away. There was no time to avoid it. It was extraordinary how he did it. So it almost seemed planned. I even briefly considered somebody had put him up to it. It was like a momentary paranoid thought that this was not a random event because it was so perfectly executed. But I don't believe that either. I don't believe because this man did something wicked in previous ages that he was brought down into the evil way of pushing people out of his way. I believe that he was unable to deal with his life in this age and that he used me to deal with his life in this age. But if he wandered in here, Right now, I get off this platform and I teach him to sit, because that is how he could heal himself and stop causing harm. I wish he would. I wish he would walk right in here. I'm not sure I would welcome him with open arms, but I would teach him how to sit. <laughs> I might get the Kiyosaku out and give him a whack as well. We'll have to see. If it ever happens, I'll let you know. So just one more side note about this koan. It's really interesting. We have a different translation of the Diamond Sutra. And that translation makes this koan look as if it's a total misquote of the Diamond Sutra. It's, it's actually very different from what our translation says. And our translation says, um, I don't have it. Well, oh wait, it's on this page. I'm sorry, I do have it. Those gentlemen and ladies, Subhuti, who will learn, memorize, and master such discourses as these will be despised. They will be roundly despised. Whatever acts leading to perdition those living beings have done in former rebirths, through being despised, they will in this life exhaust 
the demeritorious acts of their former rebirths, and they will attain the awakening of a Buddha. So this is very interesting. The Diamond Sutra is actually saying that if they memorize and pronounce the sutra, they will of necessity be despised, and that in that event, their karma will be absolved. It's not about just being pushed down on the sidewalk. It's about memorizing and pronouncing the Diamond Sutra, and then when you're pushed down on the sidewalk, you get your karma fixed for you. So I'm out of luck, because I didn't memorize or recite the Diamond Sutra before the guy attacked me. So I guess I'm stuck with my karma until I do that. But it's interesting that the koan leaves all of that out. I find that fascinating. I'm not quite sure why it did that. But obviously it had an intention. So, um, Kota Sawaki obviously had a teacher, and I'm not sure where I found this, but his teacher said, if you don't look at the evil in others, you are free. And I have to tell you, I disagree with that profoundly. I think we must look at others and see the evil in them and connect with it. Not turn away from it, not deny it, not absolve ourselves of it, but to look squarely at whatever is in front of us and connect with it. So this recalls a quote by Dokin, which I think is more appropriate. Fools look at themselves as if looking at another. Developed people look at others and see themselves. That's very powerful when someone harms you to realize that they are actually part of yourself. That you can connect with them on that level. That's very powerful. I'll let Dogen have the last word and read a poem he wrote. This life of one day is a life to rejoice in. Because of this, even though you live for just one day, if you can be awakened to the truth, that one day is vastly superior to an eternal life. If this one day in the lifetime of a hundred years is lost, Will you ever get your hands on it again? Thank you.